2: everyone and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host Crawford Gribbon and today my guest is Jeremy Black. Jeremy is a professor of history at Exeter University in England and we're going to be talking to Jeremy about one of his recent books, War and Its Causes, published by Roman and Littlefield in 2019. Jeremy, welcome back to the show. Congratulations on the book. Many thanks and welcome back. I'm sitting
1: in a garden at the moment, so if you hear birds twittering, it's because it's really pleasant here.
2: So it's not it's not Twitter. It's it's genuine birds.
1: No, it's not Twitter.
2: Good. <laughs> well, listen. You've you've published a lot. Um, your your writing has an incredibly wide ranging quality about it. But many of your books return to this theme of war. What is it about war that interests you as an historian? I think war's important
1: as well as interesting. It represents a uh, first of all a contingent um aspect of world history as opposed to people who try and present world history as in some way determined by material circumstances and technological development. It represents the interplay of ideologies and circumstances, and I find a lot of work on military history terribly disappointing because so much of it is about, um, if you like, boys and toys, tactics and weapons, and doesn't look at broader questions of the purpose, Excuse me, I've stuck in my throat. Doesn't look at broad broader questions of the purposes of conflict and of how military systems develop.
2: Now, in in the book, you you dwell on this definitional issue: what is war? How do you resolve that issue in the end?
1: Well, I think war is a large-scale violent attempt to impose will on others. So, in other words, it isn't necessarily violence itself, because violence by one person, however traumatic, after all, somebody could uh, poison a city's water supply, does not, in my view, constitute war. And I think violence is an important element because we've actually degraded the use of the word war by referring to things like war against cancer, war against crime, war against anything you like. And what that does, I'm afraid, uh, is diminish the actual Uh, nature of war. We can see the same thing happening with other aspects of the vocabulary. We can see it in the case of Holocaust. I heard an MP referring to a Holocaust of hedgehogs not so long ago. We can see it in the terms of rape, as in this notion of digital rape as opposed to the appalling physical violence of rape. Uh, We can see it in terms of slavery. So part of the problem is that there has been a degrading of the language of analysis which has um, contributed to what I think is a broader conceptual failure to understand the uh, the nature of violent attempts to impose will.
2: Now, with with this very widespread, increasingly widespread devaluation of language or evisceration of meaning in, in in terminology, theory then becomes very important, doesn't it? Analytical categories, and you propose a new typology of war in this book. You talk about wars. Uh, between civilizations or between cultures within civilizations or cultures and also civil wars. Why is that an an important typology to address?
1: Well I think that that, uh, relates to this question of the imposition of will because I think the context within which will is imposed is different if there aren't the same level of civilizational restraints or understandings of force. That's I think a distinction between wars between as opposed to within civilizations. As far as civil wars are concerned, they also tend to have a uh, winner takes all um, context in that, you know, if two powers or two entities, two polities within the state, two tendencies are fighting to determine what, sh- shall we say, would be the direction of uh, the policy of France or whom is to govern Egypt then there's very little room for compromise, whereas if two neighbouring states are having a row about the borders between um, you know, India and Pakistan, that might not be so difficult as long as this is simply a border conflict.
2: Your book is about the causes of war, Jeremy. Um, how important is religion as a cause of war in this book?
1: I think religion is very important, and religion in a broader sense, not simply in question of the actual... Um, causes or occasions of conflict, and there are many instances of war in relating to that, just as there are many instances of war that doesn't, but also religion in a broader sense of the um, moral and ethical context within a civilization affecting the resort to violence and affecting the understanding or assumption that people should be willing to give up their life for a cause. So um, in that context of religion, you can be seeing religion, for example, in terms of the moralizing of conflict, the view that conflict should only uh, take place if it is just. And of course, just war theories um, and just war practices are fundamentally uh, intertwined with religious discussion about conflict.
2: We might come back to just war theory in a second, but before we do, could we talk a little bit more about this notion of civilization? Samuel P. Huntington's book has had its ups and downs over the years. Uh, you you use civilization a lot in this book and in relation to religious hegemons, we might say, operating within those domains, conceptual or cultural domains. Are, are you influenced by Huntington's thesis?
1: Now, I wasn't particularly influenced by Huntington. I mean, I discussed him in some of my work, particularly on geopolitics, and I have made the point that you can, in fact, um, readily uh, find conflict within uh, religions as well as between them. The point i was trying to look at is civilization in a sense of accepting the same restraints on behavior. I think there is a difference in terms of um, politics, both domestic and international, if you accept the legitimacy of a differing viewpoint and I think um, within a civilization, you are more likely to accept the uh, legitimacy of a differing viewpoint because even though you would regard the others as wrong, they are nevertheless part of your civilizational group. Where I think that breaks down is if you don't accept that legitimacy, so for example, um, if you took some of the cruder use of the Huntingtonian analogy, um, I don't think it's helpful to see Islam as a civilization in that sense, because clearly between Shiites and Sunnis, and that's not, you know, that's a a distinction we could take further and, and qualify further. But let's just do it at the crudest of level. There are major differences in which it appears appropriate to some. Slaughter people simply because they're members of another group. Um, so in that case, the civilizational restraint is not operating.
2: If we were to turn the focus of analysis to, to Christendom, which is also a subject to some of the early chapters of the book, would you regard Christendom as a civilization or as a culture?
1: I think that's a fascinating um, question. I would say Christendom was a series of civilizations. I mean, I think in, in practical terms, for example. The assumptions underlying, shall we say, Byzantium in the 11th century were considerably different to the assumptions underlying um, some other of the Christian uh, churches of the period. Remember, if you're looking widely, you've got Christian churches across the Middle East. Um, some of them of course under Islamic control by that stage. Um, So I think Christendom is a complex matter as indeed any uh, definition is once you start looking at it closely because you can see it as both having a sense of distinction um, vis-a-vis non-Christian religions or faiths but you can also see Christians having an acute sense that they are not a monolithic they may be a monotheism, but they're not a monolithic uh, entity. And I think that, in a way um, was a cause of, and is indeed a problem for religious groupings, that on the whole I mean, this is not always the case, but on the whole, religion, as practiced, carries with it an assumption that a particular uh, path to salvation is uh, the meritorious one. And it doesn't always carry with it the assumption that those following a different path um, are necessarily anything other than heathens or worse. So there's clearly, I mean, as as you will know, I mean, in Christian uh, history, there have been very different tendencies in terms of ecumenicalism and in terms of just live and let live. And those have been, have varied both theologically but also in terms of practice. And again, the two of those are often in a very complex interaction. And again, you can dislike people, you can despise them, you cannot wish uh, to marry with them, you cannot wish your children to marry with them. It doesn't mean you're actually going to go in for a large-scale pogrom, let alone a an uh, inter- internecine conflict. On the other hand, We, alas, have seen in areas such as Yugoslavia and indeed in Northern Ireland, the possibility that religion um, can be an actuating principle uh, as used by some in order to justify uh, hatred, hostility and action against others.
2: You mentioned just now just war theory. One of the really interesting things about the book, it's a marvellous book. It's incredibly capacious for anyone who hasn't seen it yet. But you, you begin with... or one of your early discussions refers to St. Augustine. Why did you choose to begin with him?
1: I've always seen seen St. Augustine as a tremendously impressive thinker. And indeed, um, you know, I I was an undergraduate at Cambridge. I have to say some of the teaching was indifferent and the course was not necessarily particularly good at the university. Alas, or its history department is still somewhat overrated. But one thing that I think was really impressive was I did the... Early political thought um, paper and St. Augustine's City of God was on there. Now, they did the usual silly thing, which is they picked just book 19 and the discussion about the relationship between Alexander uh, the Great and the band of brigands as to one or other being more moral. Uh, but in practice, uh, what I did with each of the texts is I read the whole lot. Now a lot about in a lot in the city of God is to do with obscure Alexandrian heresies of that period, but it is a fascinating account of a complete um view of existence and an attempt to offer a chronology and geography of past, present, and future between um as it, as it were the arrival of Christ and the second coming and as such, it postulates a context within which um, ethical thought could be advanced. Now, St. Augustine wasn't the only great thinker in medieval Christendom, as we know, and as we know, there was to be, particularly when you get to Aquinas, a different, uh, different emphasis, shall we say. But I think Augustine is very important for the development of ethical thought, and in particular for addressing this issue of the legitimacy of violence in a world that is fallen, as opposed to a kind of perfectibility of mankind, and the idea in that context that war would be wrong. And in, in some respects, I have to say this, although I, I admire modern people who uh, do not wish who were pacifists, I think they are essentially dealing with utopian Uh, a utopian context a sort of context of the perfectibility of mankind uh, which is not one that's very helpful for for assessing what goes on.
2: And of course so much of the background to City of God is Augustine's own journey from millennial utopianism into a much more realistic uh, account of, of, of what he sees around him. How does just war theory begin to develop through this?
1: Well, because, I mean, if you look at St. Augustine specifically, as you probably know, I mean, he personally is affected by the invasion of North Africa by the Vandals, and in fact they laid siege to his diocesan at Hippo uh, and captured it in the end. Um, just war is essentially the, that you cannot simply rely on a utopian pacifism, whether it's at the individual level or the collective level, the sort of putting away all arms or believing that war only arises because of evil and that therefore Um, In a sense, good automatically can just sort of try and get evil out of the system and everything's going to be possible uh, and everything's going to be good. It's just simply not like that. It is unfortunately the case that um, war has to be justified in order to pursue the security of communities and in order to pursue their protection and then, indeed, in pursuit of goals that might be regarded as appropriate. Now, the, the latter, obviously, is up for discussion, but, you know, for for instance, the use of force in the 19th century to end the slave trade is a classic example, primarily by Britain, of course, is a classic example of a modern application of um, Just war theory to encourage intervention um, in order not to say oh the other people have a good point of view but to say their point of view is wrong. Now sometimes we can concur with that and sometimes that's rather disturbing. Um, And of course, it's very interesting in this context to see, um, if you like, the debates within Britain in the run-up to World War Two. If you think about the way in which, in September 1939, when war was declared, there was very little pacifism and, of course, there was on the on the left, because of Stalin's alliance with Hitler, and on the far right, some sympathy with Germany, but on the whole, the vast majority of people were opposed to Hitler. Um, that contrasted very much with the situation the previous year at the time of the Munich settlement. And in many senses, the German policy in the meantime, particularly breaking the Munich settlement and seizing Bohemia and Moravia uh, without you know any cause whatsoever, and you know let alone the uh, attack on Poland, helped to make it. He felt that it was a just war to fight Germany, whereas earlier there had been a considerable degree of reluctance. And again, that's very interesting that there's often the circumstances interact with the ideological um, response to the molding of the situation.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Now, you, your book, Jeremy, is organized in, what, 11 chapters, isn't it? Uh, with that opening definitional chapter, what is war, and then a number of chapters following that which look at major historical periods, War to 1500, War between 1500 and 1650. I was really struck in those early chapters, both by your discussion of the Crusades and also the Thirty Years' War as religiously driven conflicts. How do you feel about describing the Thirty Years' War as a war of religion?
1: Well, I think you have to ask why is it that people are unable to compromise in a conflict? After all, you might begin a conflict for a certain reason. And generally in most wars, they don't, it doesn't work out as people anticipated, not least because there are two sides. And the question then is, and it's not just with wars which we see as having a religious component, but also with wars we don't see as having much of a religious component, let's say the First World War. Why is it that it proves impossible? to actually um, sustain, or or let alone, in the case of the Thirty Years' War, sustain, because there were peace agreements during it, like the Peace of Prague in 1635, Um, but also, if if, if not sustain, as in the First World War, just introduce uh, some form of compromise. And the answer is that um, people are so committed to their cause, and they're so committed to what their cause has become, that they may not take what you or I would regard as optimal rational propositions. Now, why do you not take an optimal rational proposition? It's for a number of reasons. Um, Ideological factors are are a key one. They're not the only one. Uh, your identity may be so bound up in the conflict um, as was for example the case with the uh, german military leadership by um, you know the middle stages of the first world war that they, to them it's inconceivable to accept a peace proposition on the basis of returning the, to the territories prior to the war but in the case of the 30 years war clearly you get catholics fighting catholics france versus spain for example and you get, you do get protestants fighting protestants but what really encourages people to get to keep going is this sense of alienation that arises from the hostile treatment of co-religionists. Um, so that the um, taking, for example, the dr- driving by the Austrian Habsburgs of Protestant nobles out of their estates in the Habsburg hereditary lands, similar action against Protestant clerics, and um, the enforcement of a new Catholic order. This is not uh, something that um that is treated across the rest of Protestant Europe as a minor issue. Uh, there is a close concern in that period among both Protestants and Catholics in the fate of co religionists and this these or these issues are pushed to the fore in sermons they're pushed to the fore in religious collections they're pushed to the fore in things like redemptive orders so orders of catholic um, uh, clergy whose job it is to redeem prisoners uh, in in uh, slavery or in other such circumstances uh, being held by non-catholics there's a whole host of factors that encourages you to assent that your other side, the other side, is acting in an appalling fashion and a threatening fashion. There's a lot of atrocity literature, for example, after the uh, the sacking of Magdeburg by the Catholic League. Uh, there's a lot of atrocity literature in Protestant Europe about the appalling plight visited on Protestants. Um, and you can get similar similar uh, similar works in Catholic countries. So what this does is it makes compromise harder. And I think that is often an element as to why a war lasts a long time. Um, When compromise is easier, it often ends quicker. I mean, there's a good example of that is the American Civil War in 1865. Essentially, the, um, you know, the Union um, having affirmed public support for the war by the re-election of Abraham Lincoln in late 1864, they are campaigning very successfully in Virginia in 1865. And the Confederate split. Jefferson Davis, the Confederate president, knowing that the Army of Northern Virginia under Robert E. Lee has lost, in effect lost, completely, wants to turn to a guerrilla struggle. And he's very clear about that. And the generals don't, led by Lee. And Jefferson Davis fails. Now, Jefferson Davis's strategy was a strategy of continual struggle based on ideological, um, as well as obviously political, um, antipathy to a degree that compromise was impossible. Lee, on the other hand, was taking a different position. He was taking the position that they'd fought what he saw. I mean, we would have a different view of it, uh, but he fought what he saw as a, as a meritorious fight and that having lost, it was now time to try and, um, you know, as it were, recreate a harmonious body politic. Now, I think it's fair to say that that latter attitude is harder if there is a fundamental ideological divide. Now, religion is not the only fundamental ideological divide, we know that, but it is, on the other hand, something that is much more deep-rooted in people's sense of identity than most political ideologies.
2: Now, if we were to turn that argument into the so-called more secular 20th century, does it still hold?
1: Well, I think what's striking in in the 20th century, I mean, My very first book was actually—I'm not talking about an authored book; was an edited book, which was on uh, Britain in the Age of Walpole, and came out in the early '80s. And then I wrote a number of other works on the 18th century, including a big book on 18th-century Europe. And they all argued, as did a number of other scholars of that period, Jonathan Clark most clearly, that religion was crucial to identity and ideology. And that view was. Sort of, I think it's fair to say very unpopular in the academic community in the 1980s. Religion was treated as an anachronism and a belief in its importance in historical terms was regarded as absurd, that it was on its way out, etc., etc., etc. Well, you know, that may well reflect an aspiration, but in terms of a direct description of reality, that was shown to be absurdly inappropriate and inaccurate with the situation in Eastern Europe in the last stages of the um, communist uh, autocracies, Poland we can think of, and then after communist rule ended, and obviously has been shown to be misguided as far as the analysis of the Middle East is concerned, where similar secular aspirations, the sort of Nasserite aspiration, for example, in Egypt, or Ba'athism in Syria and Iraq, um, or the Shah's attempt at modernization, or you might say a liberal left-wing Zionism in the of the 1950s, 60s type. All of them have been compromised, if not overthrown, by more clear-cut sectarian positions. Um, so I would argue that religion has been underplayed in our, in our understanding of the 20th century world. I have argued that very commonly um, – sorry, I've argued that very frequently in my books. And I think there is a religious dimension that is worth thinking about in some of the struggles we don't always consider um, as religious. I mean, I think, for example, if you look at World War II, I think that um you can see not nazism as a perverted religion it's got a messianic um um uh, context and identity and ideology a messianic leader an um eschatological approach a determination to destroy uh, other um religions uh, in one case by absolute genocide but also um uh, you know, to weaken all, uh, all, all religion itself. And there is that, uh, that character of Nazism. And I think that's important. I also think that, uh, in the Western response, um, it's very instructive that, You know, large numbers of people in the United States and in Britain and British Empire uh, were willing to risk their lives. And in part, I think it was because they saw it as a moral struggle. And these were generations that had been um, brought up against a, and in the context of a quite clear Christian moralism. And it's interesting that in the Soviet Union, which was a violent, cruel dictatorship, Stalin thought it was expedient and appropriate to turn to themes of the uh, Russian uh, motherland including the religious idea of orthodoxy under uh, under attack from uh, outsiders uh, because he realized that there was traction in that as well. So yes, I would say religion does play a role. It would be absurd to argue, nobody's using this as a way to knock religion, it would be absurd to argue that religion um, is necessarily good or bad in this context. Obviously, um, religion is a field of experience. It's a way in which people see their lives, in which they understand the world, in which they understand themselves, in which they find um, a purpose. And, As with anything that you would anticipate of those, that leads to to division as much as to cohesion. And the consequences of that um, is that religion is an important way in which people categorize experience and anxiety, and therefore, it obviously interacts a lot with conflict. One of the things I find disturbing, I'll reiterate it because I said it at the beginning, but I was, I'd been eating a scone and I had something stuck in my throat. So I'll, I'll reiterate it. Uh, I think so much work on military history is very poor because it doesn't look at broader contextual questions of purpose and intention. And in particular, it seems almost to shy away from them so that most discussion um, assumes that you, re- as it were, uh, you've got two sides and they're roughly, as it were, of equal merit. And then let's concentrate on the campaigning and battles to determine why one side does better than another. And while that element is important, it is not sufficient as an account of, of military history nor of human uh, human affairs and human imagination.
2: Well, I, I know from the end of the book, you're very wary of commentary, although you're a very gifted and effective commentator yourself. But could I ask you, Jeremy, to turn from being an historian to become a prognosticator? What do you see as the future of war? And what do you see of the role of religion in the future of war?
1: Well, thank you. That's a fascinating question. I think the major dynamic in human history at the present moment is the unprecedented and rapid rise in population. I think that, uh, and indeed, may I say, I find it bizarre so much of the discussion about the environment seems to beat up on uh, on uh, big companies, uh, the practicality is its large numbers of people having children <laughs> and all the carbon dioxide and resources involved uh, in their subsequent lives, which is more important. But in the specific case, I would argue that the very large numbers of people being born, that their expectations of life will only be fulfilled or fulfillable in certain societies, societies that can provide a degree of Uh, social cohesion, political order and economic prosperity. In other societies which cannot do that or where there is a tendency to use the state to allocate resources between groups and individuals, there will obviously be a, a drive, a willingness to use force. Um, In order to gain more resources, more opportunities for oneself, for one's group, for one's family, whatever. Now, most of this will not take the form of war. It will take the form of sectarian politics, etc., etc. But in many societies, I think it will take the form of war. And I note the optimism that you get from a certain number of writers who will tell you that the world is getting better and you just think to yourself have these people never thought of going to visit Sudan or South Sudan or the Central African Republic or Nigeria etc cetera, etc cetera? there are many places in the world where already there are high levels of internal violence uh, whether you choose to regard that violence as political or criminal sectarian or uh, Or partisan, however you choose to describe it, and I think in those contexts, we can expect more trouble, irrespective of the degree to which there is conflict between states and I'm worried about the latter, but i was I'm focusing more on the drive of problems within the states now, in this um, issue, you ask about the value and particularly importance of religion. Religion obviously can perform a good if it encourages people to realize that life is, is a process of compromise, that you fulfill yourself, and if you are religious, you fulfill your religious purpose in part by incrementalism, by doing good to neighbors, by trying to live a moral life, um, by trying to, as it were, be more spiritual that you might otherwise feel tempted or inclined to be. If, on the other hand, you have a millenarian type of religion in which you are envisaging a perfect outcome, then inevitably I fear it will be the case that that is going to encourage you to, to support more radical solutions. And that, I think, is, is potentially very dangerous.
2: We've taken up a lot of your time today, Jeremy, and it's lovely to think of you sitting in the sunshine in Exeter, enjoying scones and a cup of tea. But before we wind up, could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on at the moment?
1: Yes, I'd be delighted. Um, I've got coming out an England in the Age of Shakespeare, a rather large work with the Indiana University Press. And I've got coming out, I hope if they accept it, a, a sequel volume the following year on England in the Age of Jane Austen in which I've tried to discuss the context of these writers, but also um, to try and uh, look at the the plots and the characterization in terms of how they would have been seen by contemporaries. And in each work, I give due weight to religion, and in the case of Jane Austen, of course, one has to remember very strong familial uh, Anglican um, uh, relationships, and also you have to remember her very strong personal piety. And I think, in fact, she is writing, they are very witty and they're very humorous and they're, in some respects, comedies of manners and people tend to forget focus on that. But they are also deeply moral works and it's no accident that clergymen, whilst not always uh, marvellous in them, I mean, people tend to focus on the um, self-satisfied Mr. Collins, but there are other clergy in those who are very important figures in, in the plot and in the moral framework. So those works I'm doing. I've also got. Uh, I've just recently published a short history of Spain, and I have a short history of Portugal coming out next uh, year with Little Brown. And after that, a short history of the Mediterranean uh, will follow. And you know, I'm I'm trying. I mean, people often. um Criticize me for writing a lot, and i 'm sure when the obituaries will are written they 'll always say, Oh well, it would have been better if he hadn 't written so much. I think that 's a deeply flawed analysis i mean first of all, all the books I write have been through peer review, so if people think i 'm writing too much, they should probably take take that up with the uh, the author with the uh, the people writing the reports By the way, you can hear a plane coming into Exeter Airport at the present moment um, and um I think also that if you have a skill or a gift – and I don't really feel I have any other gift or skill than either lecturing or writing – but if you have a gift or a skill, it seems to me very, very foolish um, not to try and use it. And my first boss of all was a great ecclesiastical scholar, uh W.R. Ward, uh, who was my head of department when I started in Durham in 1980. And Reg Ward, who was a primitive Methodist, a lay preacher, he had the work ethic like a sick man has pain but he also had a very strong sense of commitment to the idea that there is a purpose. I mean, obviously, Reg was a deeply religious man. Although many people found that easy to forget about him because he was also quite avuncular, uh, but he was a deeply religious man. But he also, in, his, in a way, and I think this is something that intellectuals need to think about in societies where religion is not so central to existence as a as a communal activity. And I think that's true of Western civilization at the moment. How does one devise a public morality and support a public morality? that works on more than just um, law, litigation, uh, and as it were, sort of liberal sentiment. And I think that is a question we all need to think about. And in our own way, when we're writing books and reading books, we're taking part in a thinking process about how society can best consider itself. So yes, I write a lot, but I would like to think that all the books at least offer thoughts that are worth considering. I don't expect people to agree with me, but if they come away from those books thinking, I know three reasons why Jeremy is wrong, then that's great. The book has worked because it has provoked them to think. And that is what I would really like to do with my work.
2: And this book certainly does warn its causes. Uh, just published by Roman and Littlefield, 2019, uh, a marvellous and wide-ranging survey uh, of its subject. Jeremy, as always, a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for coming and talking about your work. Thank you very much. And thanks to everyone else for listening today. I'll see you next time on New Books and History, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.